I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn, please, to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, and I'll be reading there in just a moment. We are nearing the end of this particular series of studies that we've called Let's Go Be the Church. And today we want to talk about the lost art of the welcome. What it means to welcome those particularly who are outside the body of Christ, but it applies to us inside the body as well. Luke 15 and verse 1. By the way, have you ever had a day or a morning where everything went wrong? I don't find it uncommon that on Sundays or when I'm preparing for messages that it seems that depending on the message, there seems to be an extra layer of distraction that I tend to attribute to the enemy. And today was uh, particularly one of those. Um, Things that don't ordinarily happen, happened. Uh, I wasn't sure I was even going to have notes this morning. That's okay. We don't have to have notes. I feel like I have to have notes to stand in front of you and to share, but... um, I'm encouraged because it makes me suspect very strongly that God is doing something wonderful this week and that the Lord. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What really strikes my heart this morning are those first two verses that I read. And there are a couple of verbs there that I would point to and I would draw a circle around. One of them is in in verse 1. It says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The second one is in verse 2 where it says the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. And in both cases, the, the tense that Luke used when he wrote that verse is an imperfect tense, and that simply means that it describes habitual, ongoing action. This is less about a single incident in the ministry of Jesus than it was an ongoing problem or practice or experience in the ministry of Jesus. And as you examine the Gospels, you see that over and over again, this was a primary complaint that the religious leaders had against Jesus, is that he didn't act like religious people acted. If he's the holy son of God, why does he hang out with the most unholy kind of people? 
Why doesn't he act like us? Why doesn't he talk like us? What is wrong with this Jesus? And in particular, uh, they accused him. This is the accusation. And the first time it appears is in Luke 7, verse 34. You just, just need to listen to me. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. This is Jesus talking about what they were saying about him. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I'm thankful today that this is true. Jesus is a friend of sinners. That means at a minimum, he's your friend. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus welcomed the very people who were ostracized by the religious cliques and groups of his day. He welcomed them while they were being excluded by the religious crowd. I want you to imagine being one of the Pharisees watching and listening to Jesus day in and day out as he conducted his ministry. And as, as Jesus opens his mouth in this passage and he tells this parable, he tells the parable of a shepherd who loses a sheep, a woman who loses a coin, a father who loses a son. And in each of these different ways of telling the same points, Jesus is saying to these men, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, you are missing something very significant about the heart of God. And if you miss this, you are missing me. You're missing me, the Lord Jesus. You're just missing me and what I'm about. And so imagine listening to a Pharisee who, who maybe, perhaps, the light is coming on for him. These people that I thought I wasn't supposed to hang out with that I thought were ungodly, unholy, messed up, broken, damaged, embarrassing, shameful people who would contaminate me if I hung out with them might actually be valuable to God? That He might care for them? That He might place value on them? And that I'm supposed to do that too? Too many times I fear we are guilty of, of clinging to our holy huddles. And this morning I want to talk to you about a new holy huddle that is truly holy as opposed to the holy huddle. Now you know that we are very committed to the work of our Bible study groups in this church. I believe that if this church is ever going to be what God intends it to be, it will be because our groups begin not only to study God's Word, but begin to demonstrate God's Word in the way that we speak and treat one another and the way that we speak to and treat everyone outside our group. And that God intends to work through groups. So I'm not disparaging what we do in our groups. It's important. It's vital. I believe it's designed by God. 
that we work in this way, that we have fellowship together, that we show the world what love is by the way we love each other. I believe all that's important. But when we have a mentality that, that causes our group to be closed, us for and no more, where others are not welcome, we don't, we don't invite them, and if they come, fine, and if they come, good luck trying to squeeze in to our groups. I mean, that is the holy huddle mentality, and, and, and it becomes about what I can get from the group and what it does for me, not necessarily what I bring to it. In contrast to that, Jesus says to those Pharisees, he says, guys, you are missing it. And so he, he talks about, describes what I'm going to call today a holy habit, the lost art of the welcome. And it's a beautiful thing. And I, I hope it blesses you. I think that God is wanting to speak to someone here very powerfully in light of what my experience has been already this morning. I want to talk about the art of the welcome in three ways that I see Jesus describing it here. First of all, the art of the welcome relational risk is overcoming social obstacles and taking relational risks. Well, that's a, that's a lot of language, but I'm basically saying that Jesus made the first move. He made the first move. He was intentional about connecting with people who were outside of religious circles. He took the initiative. And so I want to talk about two aspects of the intentionality of Jesus. The first one is the intentional friending of Jesus. You know, when you friend somebody on Facebook, if you're not on Facebook, you won't understand this, but if you friend somebody on Facebook, you make a friend. You know, on Twitter, you just have followers. Facebook, you have friends. And, and so, well, so-called friends. But but you friend them. And when you friend them, you say, I want to be your friend. So you say, uh, you know, you send a friend request. And if you accept it, then you have now friended one another. And we've taken the word friend and made a verb out of it. Well, Jesus was intentional about friending people. He did that on purpose. He made the first move. You say, well, pastor, I'm an introvert. I can't imagine being the one who makes the first move, who who steps out and is the first to stick their hand out, is the first one to say hello, is the first one to connect with someone. I'm an introvert. Listen, your pastor's an introvert. Now don't, don't laugh at that. Some of you say, no, you're not an introvert. I am an introvert. Uh, introversion is, a, is an attitude. It's a way of, of responding to life, re responding to people. And, it's, and some of us naturally are introverting and others naturally are extroverting. You know, some extroverting people are not necessarily friendly. Extroversion, introversion has really nothing to do with whether or not you, you can be a welcoming person like Jesus was a welcoming person. The difference is that an introvert, in order to be outgoing, has to use a lot more energy than an extrovert. Extroverts are energized by being around people. Introverts are drained. They just get really worn out. I go home, I fall in my chair on Sunday afternoon. It's not because I don't love you. It just takes a lot more energy to stand here, to interact with people, to walk through the crowds, to shake hands, to, to genuinely care. And that energy for me is supplied by the Lord. But, but an introvert can do anything an extrovert can do 
It just takes more energy to do it. So don't, don't go there. When Jesus is, is acting, he, he takes the initiative. He's intentional, and, um, and he steps toward them. He steps into their world. He makes that first move. And so he is accused of being a friend of sinners because he eats with them. And, and you've heard me talk about before how very significant that is in many cultures around the world, particularly in the Middle East. If you eat with someone and it's the same in Jesus' day, you are forming a bond with that person. You are forming a deep connection with that person. You are forming a bond of friendship. And, and in certain cultures, uh, that, that bond is something you would give your life to protect. If some of you have read about what's happened even to some of our servicemen who have been um, injured behind enemy lines and how certain tribal groups in, in, um, in Middle Eastern and South Asian countries have taken these people in and at the risk of their whole village being destroyed, they have protected those individuals because once accepted at the table, you have formed a bond with that person. Jesus was doing that with these wrong kinds of people. And so I believe that for you and I to be truly welcoming, it's more than a handshake. It's stepping forward into someone else's world. It's, it's being where they live. It's going to the places where they go. It's, it's stepping into their world, not requiring them to step into ours. And that's part of that intentionality. What Jesus was doing was tearing down the caricatures of what God was like in their mind. The only image that they had of God was given to them by the Pharisees. God is up there. God is judging you. God is looking down on you. God does not accept you. God has rejected you, and there's no hope for you unless you clean up your act. That was their image of God. And here Jesus comes. He sits down at the table with them and he says, look, let me, let me talk to you about God. He's like a father who goes after a lost son. He's like a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep. Do you feel lost? Do you feel broken? Do you feel damaged? Do you feel irreparable? Do you feel like nothing can ever put your life back together? The father is coming for you. And you see, Jesus talked to them in those terms. He talk, spoke to them in that language. Intentional friending means risking the comfort of existing relationships. We talked about this some last week, but one of the reasons you and I don't connect with people outside the church or outside the people who aren't connected with Jesus, don't know Jesus, don't ever plan to show up here, part of the reason we don't connect with those individuals is I don't need to. I've got my own group. I've got my own community. My needs are being met, and so I don't feel like I have to make any more friends. I don't feel like I have to connect with any more people. In contrast to that, Jesus stepped away from that circle. He, he ran a risk in doing that, but he, he stepped away from his circle, his comfort zone. For you, it might mean stepping away from your Bible study group, stepping away from your prayer group, stepping away from your Christian circle and opening up that circle to include someone else, to forge a relationship with someone else. It risks the comfort of existing relationships to forge new ones, and then in the process, you risk rejection. 
What if you, you go to all of that effort and you step into someone's world and you try to reach out to them and they reject you, they make fun of you, they're not interested in you. And so there's risk involved. And not everybody responded well to Jesus. So intentional friending, as Jesus did it, involves risks. And he did it on purpose. So there's intentional friending. There's also intentional inclusion. Including them in your group. That's where you invite people into your community. And you help them become a part. You introduce them to your friends. You introduce them to the people around you. And you help them get established. One of the principles, we've talked about this before in Bible study groups, is that when someone new comes into your group, it is so vital that they begin to make friends in that group. People don't leave a group where their friends are. And it's absolutely vital. If they're going to learn about the Lord, if they're going to hear about Jesus, if they're going to even come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, it's going to happen through the, the physical bodies in that group as they share and love and, and represent Christ to them, to those individuals. The genius of Sunday school, the genius of our Bible study groups here at Wynn Baptist Church is you don't have to be a Christian to be a part of one. And I love that about our groups. And uh, those of you who have, who have come to Christ as adults, you probably understand the value of what I'm about to say, but, but some, many times before someone comes to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are listening and they are watching for a long time, the Christians in their world. And when they come into a Bible study group, they get to ask questions. And for us, they may be elementary questions. They may feel like they're asking dumb questions. It doesn't matter. They've got questions. They come in, and it should be an environment where they can ask those questions. They can listen to other people talk, people not like them, people who are Christians, and they can hear them talk. They can watch how they relate to one another. And long before they understand the truth of the gospel, they're seeing the truth of it in those relationships. They're smelling Jesus in that group. They are hearing the music of the gospel in that circle. And so by including individuals, not just stepping into their world, but then bringing them into your world and including them, we are then overcoming obstacles and risks. People have crazy ideas about God. And hopefully when they come to our group, those ideas won't be reinforced. They would be torn down, destroyed, squashed. I thought God was harsh and judgmental, and they come into a room of Christians who are loving and accepting. And that, that, that character of God, that picture just falls flat, destroyed. They think God can never love them because they've messed up so bad. And then they, they encounter a group of Christians who receive them and accept them as they are, understanding their past and still loving them, still wanting to be their friends, still caring about them. And suddenly that picture of God just goes down. Boom. It's destroyed. And we have a part of that, of overcoming obstacles and risk. That's part of the art of the welcome. There's a second part of this art of the welcome that I see in what Jesus was saying and doing. And that's this, the art of the welcome is sowing truth through spiritual conversations. Sowing truth through spiritual conversations. Listen to verse 1, then I'm going to read 4 and 7. Verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Verse 4, 
What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Verse 7, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now what I see in verse 1 is that these people, all these irreligious and secular people, were drawing near to hear Jesus, and it says all of them were doing it. I think that's hyperbole, that's exaggeration, but that's what Luke wrote. He says all these people, all of these people that would never go to the synagogue to hear a Bible lesson were coming to hear Jesus. Now Jesus wasn't lecturing them about their sin, he was liberating them from that sin, setting them free. He said early on that that was his mission. Now how do you do that? What was he doing? How can we do that? Well, you need several things, and I'm going to give you just a list of words here. First, you need power. You need power. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you is everything you need. He is your power. He provides words that you would never have thought of on your own, things to say, when to speak, when to be silent. He enables through your words to provide gentle persuasion to communicate the genuine, unconditional love of God. He helps you as you interact with people, connect with those who are responsive in your social world. And those people who respond to you socially are typically the people he is arranging for you to meet and connect with. It seems everywhere Jesus went, remember, he met two kinds of people, hurting people who needed relief from God, seeking people who needed direction from God. And as you interact with people, you're going to encounter the same kinds of people when you're following Jesus. But the Holy Spirit superintends all of that. You and I are not smart enough to say the right thing at the right time. You and I are not insightful enough to know the history of that person and what they need to hear in order to come to Christ. You and I are not wired with the history and the knowledge and the insight of that individual. But the Holy Spirit is. And as you and I lean on Him, as we go into those relationships... I can sow truth into that person's life, not in my strength, but in the power the Holy Spirit provides. Secondly, you need wisdom. You really need wisdom if you're going to sow truth in people's lives. Do not expect, this is probably the number one issue that I think some of us deal with, do not expect Christian behavior from non-Christian people. Does that make sense? That sounds really wise, doesn't it? But you know how many times we do exactly that? We expect people who have not been born again to act like people who have been born again. We expect people whom the Holy Spirit has been working on for years, we expect people who have been, who have been changed by Jesus to talk differently, to talk with grace, to talk with kindness. We expect people in whom Jesus dwells not to be divisive, to be inclusive, to reach out, to build relationships, to be loving, to be kind. But people that don't know Christ are not going to be that way. They're going to say things that are offensive to you if your husband or wife said it to you. They're going to say things to you that you're thinking, I can't believe I'm hearing this, and you can get hung up on on the verb they use or the creative use of profanity that they use, and you can get all hung up on that. 
and miss the fact that God has given you a bridge to someone's soul. We need wisdom. And I believe it's the largest barrier to building relationships with people who are not part of God's family is that they don't operate according to God's standard. And they're not ruled by His Holy Spirit and they've not been changed. And you and I need to wisely understand that. I need to maintain contact with people who are not Christians without becoming contaminated by the sin that's destroying their life. You know, sometimes people in the name of God or in the name of Jesus say, well, I go to these parties, I go to these activities, I go to these things, and I do these things because Christians ought to be present at those activities. But, but the truth is, sometimes we do those things because I want to be liked by everybody, and I'm in this crowd because I want to be liked. We don't go into those environments to be liked. We go into those environments to love. And if my objective in going into those environments is to love the people who don't know Christ, to love them and to show them a better way, then I'm not going to have to worry about being contaminated with their activity or their behavior or their whatever it is that Christians aren't supposed to do that they're doing. I need wisdom. I need patience. When you're involved with someone who doesn't have a church background, you need to have patience. What's really striking to me is that the shepherd goes looking for the one that's lost, and he keeps looking, and he keeps looking, and he keeps looking, and he keeps looking until he finds it. That's persistence. That shows the value that that person has to the heart of God. He is persistent. And in order to be persistent with individuals, i gotta be, I got to be patient. And, and I'm looking for something to happen. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I'm looking for something. It's not just that individual, oh, I got, I got somebody. No, it's, I'm looking for something to happen in their life. I'm looking for something special to take place. But in that process, I've got to be persistent and patient. Ask a lot of questions. Do a lot of listening. Try to understand the people that you're trying to welcome and to be like Jesus too. Some years ago, there was a friend that I was sharing Christ with, and, and just in a, in, a, in a minimal sort of way, he, he got it. He understood the gospel. But listen to me. He had no framework. Some of you have been in church your whole life. He had no biblical framework, no background. He goes to his office, and, and uh, there are other people there, not Christians, but he gets three or four of them together at lunchtime. And he gets his Bible out. He knows nothing. Listen to me. He knows nothing. He gets his Bible out, and they say, hey, guys, let's read the Bible over lunch. The two or three of them at lunch said, okay, we'll read the Bible together. So they're reading the Bible together. They don't understand what they're reading. And they don't understand what they're reading, so, so what do they do? Well, what do you do nowadays when you don't understand something? You Google it. And so here's three or four guys. One of them is a Christian a really a baby Christian, three or four guys, they're reading the Bible when they don't understand something, they Google it. Hey, I got something to hear. Persistence and patience. A fourth word I would give you is the word seeds. I think sometimes we think of welcoming people and being evangelistic and, and stuff as is, is I, I lay on people an evangelistic message all at once. 
And, I, and I, can I tell you that there is actually precedent in the Scripture for sowing seeds. And that, and that what you need to think of when you're building a relationship with someone is I'm planting seeds into their heart. I'm planting seeds into their mind. I don't necessarily plant sermons. And so what that means is, is that in the course of talking to them, interacting with them, hearing about their needs and hurts and wants and desires and longings and pains and, and whatever's going on in their life, I just speak a word of truth to them. Maybe a scripture comes to mind. I said, hey, I just want to share this with you. I was reading this the other day. I think it speaks to what you're just describing. And, and, and you just share out of your heart. The Holy Spirit brings things to mind, and you just share with them truth. You share with them biblical truth, and, you're, and all the while you're just planting a seed here, planting a seed there, planting a seed. One of my favorite stories about that I've shared before is about a, a young engineer I worked with 25 years ago. His name was Brian, and Brian, Brian was a single guy, good-looking guy, smart guy, but he did not choose women well. And it seemed like every time he got involved in a relationship, he would fall head over heels in love with those individuals. And invariably, after just a few weeks, they would dump him. And Brian would come talk to me at the office. I, I was working in that engineering firm, and he would come, and he'd close my door. He said, Don, I need to talk to you. I already knew what it was about. And he'd pour his heart out to me and tell me, man, I'm just so disappointed. I thought she might be the one, and he just was hurt. And I'd listen to him, and I'd say, okay, Brian, now here's, listen to me. Here's what happened. I'd say, okay, Brian, man, I love you. I'm going to pray with you about that. I want to pray with you before you leave the office. But, man, someday when you got time, I'd like to share with you two or three things about how to have a relationship with God that changed my life. That was the seed. Brian, someday I'd like to share with you two or three things about how to have a relationship with God that changed my life. He'd say, okay. Well, this went on through about three or four relationships. Okay? Each time just planting a seed when he was at the height of his hurt. And then one day he comes in and he's devastated. He just thought this was the one and he is hurting more than he's ever hurt before. And he comes in, sits down, and when when we get ready to pray, after he shared his heart with me, he gets ready to pray. I said, Brian, buddy, someday when you've got time, I'd like to share with you two or three things. And he said, stop. And my first thought was I had offended him. But the next words out of his mouth were, tell me now. Seeds, not sermons. And the last word is goal. Goal. You and I need a goal when we're sowing truth. What am, I, what am I working towards? What's the goal here? Well, Jesus tells us the shepherd keeps looking until he finds it. What is, what is he finding? What is the win? How do we know when we've achieved the goal? In verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, what is repentance? Repentance is simply this. It's turning from a life without God and we call that sin, yes, but it's turning from a life without God, being independent, doing things on my own. Repentance is turning from that kind of life to God, from sin to God, and saying, God, I need you. I want you in my life. I want you to call the shots in my life. I want you to be the chairman of the board of my life. I want you to direct my life. I'm giving you my life. That's repentance. That's the win. Repentance. 
And so you and I, as we plant seeds in individual lives, what we're looking for is, is to gently, wisely, lovingly help an individual come to a place where they say, I'm in. I surrender. I am turning to him. I want to give him my whole life. That's the win. Well, the art of the welcome is overcoming obstacles and risks, sowing truth through spiritual conversations. And finally, the art of the welcome is helping people experience their real worth to the Father. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you think people listening to those Pharisees had any idea that they had any value to God? But Jesus was receiving them. Now, I want you to focus on that word receives. It's really important. Receives, I'm going to define this, it's a heart attitude that they found irresistible. It was a heart attitude when they encountered Jesus. They sensed it. They picked up on it. And for you and I to exhibit it, we need to have had that encounter with Jesus ourselves. If I don't feel welcomed by Jesus, if I don't feel received and accepted by Jesus, I'm not going to be able to do that for somebody else. And it's an expression of his heart for people. So it's a supernatural thing as he works in us and through us. Well, when it says he welcomes sinners, listen to me, when it says he receives sinners, that is the very same word used to describe Throughout the New Testament, people who were waiting for the Messiah to come. You say, well, that seems odd. You see, the, the critics weren't saying he just opened the door and let them in the house, kind of welcome, kind of receiving. No. Jesus was the kind of receiving person who was looking forward to those engagements, looking forward to being with them, looking forward eagerly to connecting with those individuals, just like someone who is waiting for the Messiah or the second coming of Christ. And in fact, Jesus illustrates this in the third story in Luke 15. The, the, the prodigal son's dad is waiting every day. He's going out. He's watching is my son coming? Is he coming? He's receiving his son long before his son ever shows up. He's already made up his mind. He's welcome here. And that was his attitude. So what we could do next time you see someone here in church that you've not seen here before, you could go up to him and say, look, I've been waiting for you to get here. Don't do that, please. I'd freak them out. Don't go up to them and say, well, it's about time. We've been waiting for you to show up. No, don't do that. Don't do that. But that's the attitude of our heart. I've been waiting for this moment. I've been waiting for this person. I've been waiting to make this connection. And that's what Jesus is, is showing us here. Helping people experience their real worth is that kind of gracious, open arm, receiving of someone into your life. Listen, you have never looked into the eyes of anyone who is not infinitely valuable to your father. Every person here is precious to God. I think to illustrate that, there's no better illustration than the one I saw Friday. I went back and looked at different pieces of the funeral around Billy Graham. I particularly wanted to hear his adult children 
and what they had to say about their dad. I want you to hear this testimony from Ruth Graham, one of his daughters, about her dad. Watch this. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> and many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you Thank you, and God bless you. Luke 15, verse 5. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. If all heaven rejoices, shouldn't we? Can you imagine the heart of God the Father? No matter what you've done, standing, arms open, saying, welcome home.
If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this morning I want to give you the opportunity to do exactly that. The reason that is so important is because Jesus died for you on the cross. And it was his death on the cross that paid the price, the punishment that your sins deserve. The Bible says that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. If you'll put your trust in Christ, say, Lord, I give you my life. I surrender to you. The Bible promises that your sins will be forgiven and carried away by Jesus Christ. And when you come to him and you trust him like that, when you surrender to him like that, He will send His Holy Spirit into your life and He will change you from the inside out. Not all at once. But that work, once started, will not stop. He is relentless in His love for you and His desire to set you free.